<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 221 with my guest, Anna David. I'm Paul Gilmartin. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there. You can uh, fill out surveys. Let me uh, get to know you, the listener, a little bit better. You can see how other people filled out surveys. You can join the forum. You can read blogs. Um, you can donate to the show. Uh, you can buy a coffee mug, a t-shirt, or you can go fuck yourself. There we go. The old chestnut. Um, feeling good this week. Been um, working out and playing uh, hockey really consistently and um, been feeling some endorphins. And I think also just getting away from that Abilify uh, nightmare the further I get away from having had that in my system. And, you know, I'm sure there's people that Abilify is saving their life and it's working great for them. But uh, it turned on me like a fucking Doberman pincher. And I feel like I've, I, I just escaped into my car and I'm peeling rubber uh, away from it. But, uh, yeah, I've been feeling endorphins this week and it's been... Um, it's been really nice. Um, I forget sometimes how important exercise is to uh, to mood. But I gotta say, there are there. I think there were two days this week where um, I did feel definitely blah, and uh, might even been on a on a day that uh, that I worked out. But uh, I guess we can't have can't have every day be like a day we're excited to uh, be out in the world. I secretly want it. That's what I want. This is an email I got from Janet. You guys know Janet, right? You know Janet from The Thing over there by the... Hmm? She writes, I'm thinking of going to a doctor to start figuring out what meds I need and I had a sudden fear. Do the meds you take make you numb or less funny? I just have this sudden fear that if I start going on meds, my emotions will dull and I'll end up with no sense of humor. Uh, meds can um, kind of dull or numb um, 
your emotions. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing, but it really depends on the med and it depends on the person and it depends on their issues. Um, so uh, there's no hard or fast answer to that. Um, do meds make you less funny? Um, I think the only thing that makes me less funny is my judgment. Uh, I, I can't ever blame the meds on a bad joke. Uh, uh, what I have found is that being on meds uh, can often be quite the opposite because when I'm on meds and they're working, I'm more prone to laughter. I'm more prone to converse and crack jokes. So uh, I would say quite the opposite, but that's just my experience. This is uh, from our struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Douche Nozzle. I'm a fan of hers right out of the gate. About her depression, she writes, a Bipolar 2, I'm a burrito of sadness with a hint of lime. I love it. About her astrophobia, which is a fear of outer space, she writes, makes me feel like a lunatic for being so afraid over something I will never come into contact with. Just pictures of or the mentioning of space shoot my anxiety up. I get it, man. Our fears do not make sense. I was um, I was in therapy today and I have this anxiety around um, hockey, uh, playing hockey, in especially a particular league that I play in. And I think one of the reasons why it doesn't apply to the other league I play in is the other league I've played with almost every guy in that league. So it doesn't have that feeling of like, oh, the you know the village is being invaded and my life is at at, at risk. Um, but this other league, it's a lot of people that I don't know, and I, I hadn't thought about it in years, but I had this experience when I was 14 years old, um, and I was always small for my age, and the older I got, the it, it felt like the rest of my peers were were just pulling away from me you know like they'd gotten in the station wagon and it was just starting to disappear down the highway and it really kind of came to a head when I was about 14 years old you know everybody was hitting puberty and maturing and getting muscular and I was four foot ten and weighed 80 pounds and um, but I was still playing baseball because I, I was a good fielder terrible hitter I was always terrified of getting hit by the ball um, but you know, decent, decent baseball player. And I was playing for this team and we had gotten into the playoffs and we were down by one run and the typical bottom of the ninth, two outs. I'm just dreading. I'm just praying that the guy before me makes an out and we lose so I don't have to go to bat. And of course he gets a single. So there's like two guys on and, and I'm just frozen in fear. Like I, I'm so afraid of getting hit by the ball that I can't even I don't need, I don't want to swing at the ball because that is more of my body exposed and a greater chance of being me being hit by the ball. So I'm just praying that this guy is going to fucking walk me. And um I I got called out on strikes and I just remember feeling my stomach just just feeling shame. And not a single person on my team said anything to make me feel better. They, In fact, they all kind of avoided me. And I think the coach might have even said something kind of shitty to me. Um, 
And I hadn't thought about that moment. And I don't know if that contributes to my anxiety, but I'm doing EMDR around it. And um, it just feels, it feels kind of pathetic. Like I'm a middle-aged guy and I'm nervous about, but it's almost, it's, it's like when I, when I get that anxiety about that game coming up, when I'm in the game, I'm usually okay, but it's the, it's the lead up to it where I feel like, um, it just, like my heart starts to race and, uh, I hope she can help me with it. I hope EMDR can, can help with that. If not, I just hope somebody puts me out of my misery. Anyway, continuing. This is uh, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Tiger and about her asexuality. She writes, I feel broken like there is some part of me missing that I'll never get to have. A snapshot from her life. The first time I had a panic attack was in my dorm room at 2 a.m. I woke up with this crushing feeling like I was suddenly going to die. My heart raced and I got up to tell one of my sweet mates that I was having a heart attack. But when I went to the door, went to knock on her door, I froze in the hallway. I couldn't move or breathe, so I just stared at her door and cried. Eventually, the panic subsided, and I just went back to bed. I never told her or anyone. Well, Tiger, a lot of us know how you feel, and um, I'm sorry you had to experience that. Uh, Same survey filled out by Lucy uh, about her depression. She writes, like a million black lightning bolts straight to the brain about her anxiety. Like a slight frown or uneven tone of voice means the person I am talking to just realized what a fucking loser I am. Uh, And then she writes, "Uh, I would really just like to be dead for about six months, which struck me as like, I get it, but it's such a, I've, I've never heard, I guess basically that would be a coma. Like you would have to commit coma. And how hard would that be to commit coma? You'd have to know, you'd have to like have an engineer tell you how exactly how far to step out in front of the bus so that it would put you in a coma but not kill you. There would be no unemployed engineers. That would be the upside to it. Um, snapshot from her life. Today after an argument with my mom, actually she says mom. I love when you guys call your mom your mom. My mom. I looked in the mirror and genuinely wished I could scratch every trace of her out from my reflection. I think a lot of us, isn't that a terrible feeling when you catch yourself doing something you hate about your parent? You're like, oh no. This is a same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself shameful boob. And she writes, when I was five, I broke my arm and tried to hide it from my parents because I didn't think they would care. My mom noticed something was wrong when she saw my arm was shaped like an S. We still went to the travel agent so my parents could book a vacation before we went to the hospital. Your parents should be in jail. This is um, this is the same survey, and this is filled up by a guy who calls himself Ben. And uh, snapshot from his life, he, he writes, It's not enough to be the, quote, funny guy in the group. If someone else gets a laugh, I feel a pang of jealousy and betrayal, as if my friends now love me a little less, and enjoyment is a zero-sum game. Ben, I had that a lot in my teens and 20s, and... I've never been so glad to let go of something. I think maybe because I became a, a professional comedian that I eventually um, realized that 
I couldn't continue to go through through life that way. But um, I, I hope you can find a way to tell that part of your brain to shut the fuck up because it's uh, it's no fun. Uh, and then finally, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Ick Bannon Lull. And snapshot from his life, he writes, I don't care about anything, and I hate myself for that, but I don't care about hating myself enough to do something about it, and I hate myself for that. But that's okay, because I don't care. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15 Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt. Reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing. I'm here with Anna David who is a uh, New York Times bestselling author. She has a podcast called uh, The After Party Podcast. Um, she's a sober person. Um, what else, uh, before we wrap this up, what else should people know about you? We're, we're done, by the way. You've exhausted me. <laughs> it was, it was a delight. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel like I said anything that I'm ashamed of. You've um, said, you've said enough. <laughs> you've said enough. I, I think my main thing right now is I started this website called After Party Chat that's all about addiction and recovery. And the podcast is really just I post, I don't know, I post 60 stories a week, and it's one of the posts. So when, well, although it's the part I'm Wait, the most up. obsessed with. Back up. You post 60 stories. I just so exaggerated. I also can't do math. We've been doing five stories a day, and now I have to increase to 14 a day with more help. I'm allowed to, I'm hiring people. Um, but I can't do math. You're Is talking, that 16? Are, are you talking about written stories? Written stories. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that is a lot. I get overwhelmed if I have two guest blogs in a week. But Do you edit them? I, I'm the only editor right now. Oh, my God. You must be so busy. Is your phone on uh, airplane mode? Oh, you know what? It's on silent, but let me yeah. turn it on airplane. I always forget to turn mine, and then it starts to buzz. I'm like, ah, oh, shit. Okay. It's terrible. Um, so, so basically, I started this site. Um, wh when I had you on my podcast, I had just started it. And it was this labor of love that I was convinced was going to be the end of me because I couldn't figure out how to make money at it. And then I sold it in January to like an independent investor. And so it was a game changer. The, the site and the podcast? Yes. Okay. I don't even think he knows I have a podcast, frankly. Okay, so the the how many how many uh, visitors on a typical day does the God, website forgetting get? the traffic? It, I know that we've uh, quadrupled since in the last two months. I'm, you had one, now you have four. <laughs> no, it's really good. I I always am blanking on the numbers. Is it sixty thousand a month? I 
you, you saw what I just did trying to multiply articles. So yeah. these, <laughs> right. these Let's questions stay away are not, from math. I'm a, I'm a You're not here to, to show off your, your math, math, skills. math skills. No. Let's, uh, let's get right to it. Yeah. What was your, what was your child, childhood like? Well, I think, well, I mean, I, at the time I thought it was the loveliest, luckiest childhood One ever. of those, huh? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had uh, materially everything. I was a spoiled, spoiled kid. And I grew up in Marin County where I think you assumed if you had everything that your childhood was perfect. But, but also I was surrounded by people who had everything. Um, and, and you know, I, I know a lot of sober people who will say, you know, I was never comfortable in my own skin. I always knew I was different. And I, I didn't. That was not my experience. Um, I was a happy kid. I was well-adjusted. I was all of those things. And then it was sort of high school is where things really went awry. I mean, it was always in me. Mm. I just think, but looking back, it's not like I'm in denial about having been happy. But I don't know if it just took time. And kids are so resilient, too. Yeah. it's, um, It's amazing. So much stuff comes up once we get to be like 18 18 to 25 it's like if a if something's head is going to rear it's it usually seems to be in those in those years but for you it was or earlier but for you it was it it was high school what well a lot it's my circumstances got decidedly worse um you know the big thing that happened when i was 16 is my dad was busted for embezzlement and he was a well-known guy in the bay area so it was news and it was, you know, what was his business? He was embezzling. He was um, he started uh, sort of the first TV discount and stereo store in the in the Bay Area. So he was like the crazy Eddie guy mm-hmm. on the radio all the time on TV doing really well, made a ton of money doing this, opened a God, I, I don't even know legally if I'm allowed to get too specific about it. But he he opened a computer store. He was the first guy to sell Apple computers in San Francisco. Really? I mean, the guy's a genius. If his morality had been better, I can't even tell you what might have happened. You know, he graduated number three in his class from Harvard. I mean, he's incredibly smart. And, um, and so the problem with that... Because uh, I don't think that would be damaging necessarily in itself. I'm out, you know, out of my formative, you know, to me, zero to 12 is when the real damage can happen. And, um, but it was the way it was handled was just so painful. Um, How so? You know, um, my dad has never to this day, you know, had any accountability about it. Um, he has an amazing ability to just. I don't know. Just I've got a book for you to read. Which one? I might have read it. The Sociopath Next Door. Yeah. Have you read it? No, but but he does have sociopathic you, tendencies. You should read it. It's I say this about every fucking book I read, but it's blowing my mind. It's he, blowing my mind and it's so it's so um explains the, the two things that I've that, that I've taken out of this book are that um, sociopaths uh, they have no conscience. It's not. Right. It's not that they make moral choices. It's impossible because they don't love. Everything is an object to them, right. and because they don't get those jolts of humanness that we get from crying with a friend. You know what? What they have to mimic all those emotions while inside they are constantly bored out of their skulls, and so the only thing that really 
gives them that that fills them up or, or takes the boredom away is taking risks. And was your dad a big risk taker? Yes, that really explains things. I mean, he um, when he had a lot of money, you know, had private had plane Cessnas. He flew not yeah. well. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I was in them. Um, you know, he he um, now he does trading online. So it's oh, like man. one day it's amazing. But he probably he, feels alive. Yeah, he doesn't act like someone who feels alive ever. But um, but I, from what I hear him say, I guess yeah. he doesn't. He doesn't talk either. So that's also weird. Well, the other the other thing that the, this author that that she shared is that they are definitely not to be envied because on the outside, sometimes we occasionally will envy somebody who climbs ahead with no conscience. But one of the things that she described is they always burn, almost always burn their lives to the to to the ground because they're so addicted to risk because they can't feel the emotions that we feel because there isn't that that empathy mm. and that true connection with with other human beings and I don't know if your dad is one of those guys but I'm just speaking in 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 general about you know I've used the word sociopathy more comparatively rarely to describe him other other uh, you know he has a multitude of issues I mean he's definitely an addict who's not treated. Um, I, I've definitely thought he had Asperger's for sure, um, and he definitely has depression. Um, sounds like a treat. N- narcissism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he kind of got them all. There's were disorders on him. sale when? Uh, <laughs> Apparently, when in his sworn. family, they were. Um, yeah. So, so it's you know, and and one of my fears is that you know he's destroyed me. That like. I got ruined by him, you know, because um, he's really, really, really sick um, and, and very much still alive. So, um, you know, uh, there's the, and there's more to it than that. But but, you know, in terms of the legal trouble, uh, you know, it was it was on the front page of the paper and, and we didn't talk about it at all. I mean, I was told I was sat down. I was told this is going to be in the paper. And that's that. That was the end of the conversation. And my brother was at boarding school, so... Where was your mom? My mom was there. I mean, she was part of the conversation, but for so long, she just, you know, codependence is one of her. She's, my mom's amazing, is the thing. But she married this guy, and that was, you know, her lot basically and 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 unfortunately while her values are amazing and her input is amazing she, my dad was a loud voice my whole childhood you know my dad used to say um and if we still listen to him like he still says it you know uh in this family we subscribe to the golden rule the one who makes the gold makes the rules and i didn't know there was another golden rule until i went to college i thought that was it you know what's the other golden rule do unto others as you would do is unto... Is that what it is? Yeah. Uh, I'm learning that at f- 51 years old. Yeah. Well, yeah. I learned before you, so yeah. I guess I'm ahead of you in one way. <laughs> I'm also very competitive, by the way. Um, what are you competitive about? Um, I mean, it's something I've worked on so much, but inherently I'm competitive. Um, mostly career stuff, but even that. Like, I thought, oh, I learned before you. Well, when I looked at your website, uh, my first thought was... Uh, I should have that much energy and focus and drive. Like, 
it's so well laid out and you've got all these projects and you've written all these books and you've written for all these magazines and it just I, I what's that drive like I know you don't have anything to compare it to but is it does it come from fear I think it comes I mean I love it I have to be honest I love that about me so it's not there's not dread associated with I've got all these things to do today or is there an element of of, of dread never I love it so much I was well, just oh one of my fears is um not having enough to do um and and the pain of it i have not become aware i'm fully aware of the fact that i do it not to feel i'm a hundred percent clear on that but it's it works you know it works i mean so there's I still a payoff feel. yeah there's a major payoff and i, I they're so accomplishment focused these these people in my family you know my my um was love given if you accomplished as a kid was love given Love was given. I mean, my mom is incredibly loving. Um, my, and my dad loves us in his own totally twisted way. But um, it wasn't love. I mean, my dad was a briber. If you got A's, you got money. Um, and I don't know if I can disagree with that, honestly, because I, I believe for, for kids, I believe much more in reward than I do in punishment. Right. Um, I don't know if money is the... I don't know. I'm not a parent, uh, but that when I when I hear that you know I got hundred dollars if I got an A, I think that makes sense to me. That's I know. And and by the way, you know one of the ways uh, people are trying to not treat addiction but get kids not to do drugs is you know they give them a cell phone and if they stay clean they get to keep the cell phone and all these things. And I think that that sounds pretty smart. How do you know if they're staying clean though? Drug test them. The drug test. For some reason, that makes me uncomfortable drug testing kids. But I guess kids who are doing heavy drugs. I mean, not like we're not talking like we're talking like sixteen year olds. I see. You mean kids that have a track record of having done drugs? I thought you meant just you know you give your eleven year old a phone (laughs) and then you're you know gonna drug test them once a week. That being said, an eleven year old doing drugs probably should be drug tested once a week. But but yeah. So so I I met a kid that's never that to your mind has never done drugs. That's that would be insane. My dad might do that. Um, yeah. No, but but so what was I trying to say? Oh yeah, yeah. So the, well, the problem wasn't the bribery. The problem is when you did it, he would pretend he didn't remember the conversation, he, or or kind of what we were talking about. He didn't remember the conversation. Um. So there was a lot of that when you did what? Like, let's say he said, "If you get an A, you get a hundred dollars." Oh. I don't remember the bribe, and then you'd get the A, and he'd be like, "What? What?" You know, so there was a lot of promising and then not just like, oh, I've changed my mind, but like didn't truly didn't remember. You're crazy is the way you felt. Do you think that's because he was so busy thinking about himself constantly that it just kind of if it didn't have to do with him, he just kind of didn't sink in? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think I guess what he's thinking about all day is himself. It's a mystery to me what he's thinking about. How old is he? I don't know. I mean, he's 76, maybe. Okay. Um, the craziest, craziest part of all of this is that they got divorced when I was, they separated when I was, I think, 19, happiest experience of my life. I was so thrilled. And then they got back together when I was 20, 20, maybe just they were separated for like a year or two. And then they divorced in a terrible situation. Um, I happened to be home. I just graduated from college. I happened to be there for dinner with my mom and my dad kind of walked in and said, I want a divorce or I want an open marriage because he thought he'd fall in front of you. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. That, I mean, that wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to him to not do that in front oh, of there, me. Oh, I mean, there's, yeah. He has no social yeah. none. skills. None at all. Um, and no, and no concerns if he's damaging anybody. So, so that happened and, and it sounds like it's not a choice he makes. It's like he doesn't realize there's another choice. I don't know. I think they're choices. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and all that, oh, he did the best he could. Really? Really? You know? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, somebody saying that in front of their kid seems so unnecessarily it, it it's like so unnecessarily uh disregarding that child's discomfort that i so want to believe he doesn't realize that it's not inappropriate <laughs> i'm just like rooting please but tell me he's not, he not that big of a dick he, it's it's weird. I don't think of him as a dick. I think of him as the sickest person I've ever met. I don't even know. I mean, that was certainly not the first or last time he had absolutely no concern for whether or not something he did was damaging. I mean, that was among the least, I would say. I was 21. You know, I was an adult. Um, you know, and I had my brother and I have major, you know, codependence with our mo- mom. Like, we just want to take care of her. And so that was the painful part is that I had to see my mom. As you could see how it hurt her. Oh, my God. I mean, she lost it. and um, In that instance when he said yeah, that? You know, yeah. What did, what did she do? I, I mean, this is sort of vague to me, but I, I think she sort of begs him to change his mind. And um, he left, and he, like, went MIA. Which he doesn't, that's not his, his mode, but he just disappeared. And in that time, you know, he had what is now actually my mom's bedroom he, it was his office um and she went there well it's such a crazy thing so she in the time she was married to my dad she had met this one man who uh who th- like they just had an insane connection and he was married and she was married and and it's now a story that's like i know very well but like like they met, it was like this crazy connection. And then they were staying at the weekend for the weekend at mutual friend's house. And in the morning he said, he came to her and was like, I wish I could have held you all night. And she was like, my mom was pretty much faithful. I know she had one affair, not with him. And she was just like, Oh my God. And then, you know, several years later she was, so she called her best friend and, and said, she hadn't had sex with this guy. No, I mean, at, at this point, I really, I, There'd be no reason for them to have lied about it all these years. She really did not. And she called her best friend to tell, you know, to say, you know, Stephen said he wants an open marriage or he's leaving. Um, And the best friend said, guess who's divorced now? Mm -hmm. The guy that wanted to hold her all night. Yeah. And so she called him, I guess. And they fell madly in love. And that that was my stepdad. And he he died two years ago. But um, did they have a, a happiest marriage you can imagine yeah yeah it's crazy it's so i mean he was the love of her life um and he was amazing he was totally i mean it's not just because he's gone like he really was an amazing guy um so and that was just you know that gives you hope you know she was i guess 50 um he was 18 years older than her so he died you know at the time um, that he was appropriate. Um, 
And so, and so I am not kidding. She went on one date with him and he moved in. And, and you liked him right away? No, no, of course not. Because it wasn't your dad? No, I mean, anybody's better than my dad. <laughs> but You have a t-shirt that says that. Yeah, That would be a fucking great t-shirt, is, wouldn't it? Anybody is better than my dad. But you'd scare people. I mean, I, I could wear know. it here. You would get hugs. There would be some people that would go, <laughs> yes, I know. But I don't want, I don't want pity, ever. I have a thing about that due to yeah. something my dad did. But, um... But so, I didn't like it. We have at to first. come back to that, whatever that is. Yeah, for sure. But it's very specific. Um, so, so no, I was like, who is this man? This old man in my house? And it, oh yeah, because he was sixty eight and your mom was fifty. Yeah, so, yeah. So that felt weird or creepy or. I, well, I was more like, who is this man in my house who's so comfortable, who does not care that I'm weirded out by this? I mean, I didn't live at home anymore, you know, mm-hmm. but, but. I, you know, I think my brother and I were both like, that is, what? That, that would be jolting. Yeah. But how long did it take for you to, to realize, I like this guy? I mean, not long. He was amazing. So I would say maybe just a couple months. And, you know, we saw how happy my mom was and and how good their relationship was. And so... You know, and, and I mean, he has he had no desire to really be my dad. You know what I mean? It wasn't like he took over some role that was never filled. Yeah. I was too old for yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to say you were an adult already. Yeah. But he was like, you know, just a really good friend. I mean, and we not we didn't get super, super close. But like, I, you know, he was he's he was the happiest guy I've ever met. Wow. Yeah. Just and happy. You had been thrilled for your mom that your mom finally found her soulmate yeah yeah um and so and how just, did your dad ha- handle his bluff being called well i mean about i guess like probably four or five days after that that uh i i want an open marriage or i want a divorce he deeply regretted it and i think has regretted it ever since but wait till you hear what happened so he just went oh my god Oh my god, I I fucked up. The woman he was having the affair with cuz we knew her, we ended up knowing her. Was like, I mean my mom is gorgeous still. You know, has a PhD in English literature, is the funniest, most charming woman ever. And and Cheryl, the woman he was with, was this like, you know, all the women he had affairs with didn't hold a candle to my mom. And I think he kind of got a jolt of reality and was like, what did I do here? And so he kind of went to my mom and well, I mean there's there's like worse stuff but I don't want to skip this important thing which is that um, you know uh, probably the most disturbing aspect of my relationship with my dad is that um, is that from the time I was really little like four or something he just became obsessed with me and how I looked nothing else it's so damaging yeah yeah and it manifested itself well he took my picture obsessively and, um, but the, but the bad stuff is that, is that during family dinners, never any other time, cause he'd, he'd get drunk and I'd be like sitting across the table from him and he'd start winking at me and, and then he'd be like, come over here and, and sit on my lap and I would sit on his lap and he would say, you know, you're more beautiful than your mother. You know, I love you more than I love your mother. Would you say this in front of her? Yeah, but it was like kind of, you know, we were all in our other conversation. So it wasn't like we all sat down and this happened. It was later in the night. And um, and then he would try and then he would say, kiss me 
I'd give him a kiss on the cheek, and then he'd say, no, kiss me on the lips. And as a kid, that's what I did. And then, um, and then it was when I was, I think, 19, I was in therapy. It wasn't the first time I'd been in therapy. It was, I guess, my second therapist. And he was a psychology professor at Trinity, where I went. And he was this amazing guy. And I was telling him that I was dreading going home for Thanksgiving. And he asked why. And I said, you know, not even really thinking it was that big a deal. Oh, you know, my dad gets drunk. And then he tries to get me to, to like, not sit on his lap. I mean, I was too old for that. But he tries to get me, tells me, loves me more than my mom. And I'm more beautiful than my mom. And then he um, he tries to get me to kiss him on the lips. And, um, and I said to this therapist, you know, if any other guy did that to me, I'd say fuck off. But because it's my dad, I don't feel like I can. And he said, you know, Basically, you know, you realize that's sexual abuse. And I was totally floored and had never considered it that, you know. And, and I mean, I, what's crazy is I am like 100% sure my dad never touched me. Doesn't matter. Yeah. That's, but it, uh, that's incest. Yeah. That is. Yeah. There's, there's no two ways about it. That's, yeah. it, that's incest. Yeah. And, and it, what, what's more damaging is the way my family has responded to it. Um, because I'm not including a including your mom. Yeah, unfortunately, you know. Now, when I say my mom is amazing, I mean, I mean, she always had these great qualities, but the the emotional growth and is like the way we can interact now is totally different than it was then. Better or worse? Oh, better. Yeah, it's great. Um, but at that point, what happened was I just called them, and I was like, "Guess what." Um, you sexually abused me and like I didn't wait to come home for Thanksgiving I just said it and they did not re- take it well um, and then I guess I went home and I just kept I'm a, like a talk I just kept talking about it and and what happened nothing really happened at that time I would say that mostly the response was um, sort of like you're confused you're making this up you know, all the greatest hits. Yeah, or even an interesting one. You're right. I saw that. I don't know why you think it's so bad. What? Yeah. Who said that? Um, my mom and my brother have both said that over the years. Um, you know, and my mom had an incredibly close relationship to her dad, who who died before I was born, and has even said to me that was like what my dad was was like with me, and not really quite like that, but but it made me feel really special. And I have definitely had many thoughts that if my dad were a more appealing guy, if he weren't the most boring, unappealing guy ever, I might have liked it. There was no part of me that liked it. No, I did not want his attention. I did not even want a relationship with him. You know, from the time I was a little kid. So, so, um, and that's really common, uh, from what I understand with, uh, incest survivors is there was, and not necessarily with, with your father, but you're saying it, you know, I might've felt differently about it if he had been this guy who was charming and et cetera, et cetera, is uh, there is an aspect to it that is pleasurable either physically or uh, emotionally. Yeah. And it's one of the things that can lead to sex addiction and acting out is because you then equate that with love. Absolutely. And, and I, and I definitely have aspects of that, but more, I mean, 
more just revulsion. You know, my issues are more about like relationship avoidance than I was going to say, what does it bring up in you when you're with a guy and he does something physically that reminds you of your dad? Well, um, or has that never happened? It, it has. I mean, mostly I just like men. I'm drawn to men that are the polar opposite, that are you know, incredibly charming, incredibly funny, incredibly socially adept, um, incredibly, you know, I think sometimes incredibly not paying attention to me. I was just going to say, yeah, uh, charming and all that stuff and emotionally unavailable, loving the room, but not you. Yeah. I mean, I think that that has definitely been a pattern. Um, But but so I didn't have issues with this at first, you know, I mean, I think that, um, well, but I think the, the, the biggest issue it gave me or one of them, one of the most obvious ones to me is, um, and this sounds so obnoxious, but because I heard every day, you know, my mom used to say it to me too. So my mom grew up feeling fat and not attractive. And so she has told me she decided she was going to tell her daughter she was beautiful every day, no matter what she looked like. And so I had both parents telling me this all the time not telling me much of anything else and so every school every anywhere i've ever gone i walk in and i'm like i'm the hottest thing here <laughs> and you know and the thing is even though it wasn't necessarily true i i willed it to be true like i managed to make them all think that it was amazing and so what that did to my ego and what that still I I still get what I'm doing but I'm still I'm just I'm flummoxed if somebody rejects me a man rejects I just I'm just like that that couldn't be possible and it's been horrible that what does it feel like when you get rejected by them um What, what emotions come up well uh I mean my brain says this was this is the last man on earth so you're alone forever and um does it tell you that you were that i did something oh okay but it doesn't tell you that you were uh you've been wrong about yourself all along that that you you've been misinformed and because i know when i build myself up to with a sense of grandiosity about my ability in something and then it doesn't work out I think not only was I not good at that, I'm the I'm fucking horrible and I'm yeah. clueless. Yes, it, you know because you know we're addicts. There's yeah. no there's no five. I mean, yeah. it's it's zero yeah. or ten. We're the king or we're the peasant. Yeah, well, my, I had a therapist that used to say, you know, you're you're the shit or you're shit. Yeah, you know, there there's no in between, and I mean, I do think I'm getting in between, which is amazing. You know, which has a lot to do with my being. I think happy for the one of the first. No, I was happy as a kid, so it's hard to say. But but happy in a in a more real way. Um, but yeah, no, no. But I would go to. Not even I was wrong. It's I don't even remember that I thought I was the shit. It's that it's just that. Oh, of course. You know, I'm inherently unlovable, and so. I'm, I'm finally getting the truth. Not even I've forgotten that the other existed. I have a hundred percent. It is not in my consciousness anymore. Wow. Yeah. And it is just like, well, and it's that I did something because, you know, I have definitely been drawn to men who are hot and cold. So, you know, 
and my sponsor and I were just talking about this this week. It's like you get that they are hot and cold, that it actually doesn't have to do with you. And I and I have not gotten that, you know, um, I get it now. But so it's you make it all about you. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so addicty. Yes. Yes. And it doesn't feel like narcissism because it feels like. I'm I'm being so horrible to myself. Like that doesn't feel like nar- what I think of as narcissism. The day it occurred to me that self-loathing and grandiosity are We're just the same. D- the same thing, just different sides of the coin. Yeah. Was a revelation, and they're both ways to distract me from being intimate with other people because it's all about me. It's like 99% me, and I just yeah. Don't even think that maybe you're having a bad day. Right. Maybe that's why you didn't return my phone call or right. you were short with me. Maybe you're as wrapped up in your bullshit as I am. But I think what's hard about that is that I am so singularly focused on one thing or one person that I can't imagine they're not feeling that way. So they do something and it's like, well, you must feel exactly that if you felt the, that way, you would yeah. be, this would be your number one priority. You know, and it makes sense that you would be attracted to charming guys because they, in so many ways, can give off that illusion that they're connecting to you. The the, the charming person who's emotionally unavailable is almost like the sociopath. They, on the outside, look like someone who can connect, but right. But when it really comes to crunch time, when it's talking about the issue that's uncomfortable, right, or saying hey when you did this it hurt my hurts my feelings they don't know that how to speak that language so that shit just well and not to mention disappearing <laughs> you know physically disappearing or emotionally oh, or both physically yeah you know just like wait what, what where did you go does that make you desire them even more or is that like i got to get out of here or somewhere depends. in between it really depends on the person you know um in in the sort of pursuit or wooing phase if people kind of go away i'm like fuck you you know but but if i've gotten emotionally invested i think i get more hung up on them do you have you ever been obsessive about some of you just smirked like oh yeah (laughs) yeah of course i mean i think everybody has but give me some snapshots of oh my god well i mean i yeah, I mean, I what happens to me, I really want to say past tense because it's really so much better. So I'm going to say past tense. What has happened to me has kind of makes it sound like I'm not, you know, in denial of it could happen again, is that I, um, I basically will get completely myopic. So I have this big life. You cannot argue with the fact that I have a big life, especially now. It's like I started this thing. I built it. Somebody bought it. I get to be paid to continue to do it. Um, I have friends that love me that I love. I have this. I have all these things. And when I get obsessive, who gives a shit about those things? It's not even. It feels like a telescope. A telescope that starts big and just gets really small, and it's all it is is that person's face. And the way I know that it's not about that person is that he's a substitute for the guy a month ago. Same feelings, different face. You know? Describe the feelings. 
it's it's sort of um you know it's just that um this was the last man on earth and he he found out he liked you a lot and then he found out you were inherently unlovable for reasons that you don't you don't know what they are and um, that that hurts so much not knowing what they might dislike about you is there anything more tortuous than that that's like spanish inquisition shit (laughs) you know because you you feel like if you knew you might be able to change it right but at least that's the feelings i've had in my lifetime was was just like oh my god you know why did i lose this job or why did this friend cut me out i'm never going to know why and right. i'm going to keep doing it i'm 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 in prison if they would just show me what the key looks like i could get myself out of here but go that's ahead. interesting i mean i don't i don't think about it like that i think i think that what i think is that it's unchangeable anyway ah so, so I'll just keep doing it, you know. Um, so, so, but what's very interesting about all of this stuff is that it it was not the way I I was. So I, you know, um, I I went to college and I and I would every year I had a different boyfriend. And my pattern was I would, you know, I waited to lose my virginity until I was a freshman in college and so there was that guy and I was like okay this is the first time in, I'm in love and I really felt like I was in love with him and then after about nine months I didn't feel like that anymore and um and so then around that time, and you broke you broke up with him yeah I always broke up with them okay. but but the pattern was then I then I would meet somebody else and and we would get started and I would go, oh, my God, I'm in love with him. And, and I wouldn't have to want to go back and, you know, feel shame and be like, I cheated on you. So I just break up with him. And then I do it. Was it ever difficult for you to break up with them? Did you ever worry about hurting their feelings? Um, or was it just like, no, I need to do this? Was it, was it a healthy, did you look at it healthily in terms of this is what I need? Um, mm, I don't know. I doubt it. I, d- I mean, I, I, I am not a sociopath, so I did feel bad, but I wouldn't say I felt traumatized by it. Okay. You know, I sort of think... So it wasn't agonizing to break up no. with people? Okay. No, I guess that's it was a relief. Okay. Because for some people, they will stay yes. in terrible relationships because they can't bear the thought of that other person feeling pain. I, I hear that. And when I will say, somebody just said this to me recently, if, you know, if there are two ways to be fucked up, which is to avoid the relationship and to stay in the relationship past its due date, I'd, I'd pick that one, you know, over the one that, that I do, you know, which is get out first sign of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, Being a love Avoidant? Mm-hmm. What I mean, what would you somewhere between you addict and avoid? You know that book. I think they're the both. You yeah, know, aren't they kind of the like the what we were talking about the the grandiosity and the yeah and the self loathing. It's it's uh, it is. It's I very mean, confusing. I, I vacillate between the two rather effectively, I would say, or ineffectively. If you, want you to like. I like to say that you are good at doting on both of them. <laughs> I am. I don't in. Uh, enjoy the avoidance at all i enjoy i mean enjoy is the wrong word i my addict certainly gets alive in the love addict part have you ever gotten any kind of treatment for being an incest survivor yes i did uh i did group therapy here in the valley with a woman who's known for doing this and 
I found it re-traumatizing, frankly. It was the kind of therapy she did. It was group therapy. I went for years and years and years. And we would... Was it all uh, sex abuse survivors? Uh Uh-huh. Did you ever feel... Did you ever compare your stories to theirs and feel that yours wasn't um, uh, as... All the time. All the time. Did you feel like that was a hurdle to you? Because I do, too. I... Um, when I'm talking to somebody who's, I feel is more valid mm-hmm. than mine or more dramatic or traumatic, I feel like a fraud. To- absolutely. And I don't even talk about it anymore. I mean, I, I'm perfectly comfortable talking about it, but I wouldn't say I talk about it actively anymore as sexual abuse. I talk about it more as like, oh, my dad, you know, fucked with me. My dad's very sick. Um, Because for a long time, I defined myself with that. Hi, I'm Anna. I was sexually abused. You know what I mean? And it kept me very unhappy. Kept you stuck as a victim. Yeah. And that therapy, oh my God. So we would write letters with our left hands telling our parents that we were divorcing them and just shit that... I just didn't get anything out of. And a, and a very uh, damaging thing happened to me there, which is that I needed a psychiatrist when I was, I was on antidepressants already. And so I asked this therapist, can you recommend a psychiatrist? She recommends this guy. And I go there, I hated him from minute one. He was just like, he was horrible. And he was horrible, and then it's, please pay me $250, you know. And so I went to him for a while. And one of those times... Um, and this would happen to me very occasionally, never happen again. A doctor says, he's got the form out and he goes, okay, so do you drink? And, you know, and I just got honest for some reason. He said, do you do drugs? And I was like, "Uh uh-huh, you know, I do cocaine. And he looked up, raised an eyebrow and said, well, how often? And I said, you know, about every other night or something like that. And he put his pencil down and said, you have to tell blah, 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 this therapist or I'm going to. I didn't know that was illegal. I didn't know anything. I just I just said, are you serious? And he said, yeah, I have to. And I went to group the following week. And, uh, and I said, guys, I've got something to tell you. I've been doing tons of coke. I've stopped. They all looked at me, said, great, and kept going. So whatever he was trying to accomplish with that was ineffective. And then I went back and I was getting... Did you stop? No. I was going to say. No. That's but he was just an an, an idiot. Like that's not going to do anything because I'm still lying. I just made the mistake of being honest with him, and so and I was getting tons of Ambien from him, and and lying all the time. And my lie was always I went out of town, I lost the bottle. Was it a mistake to be honest with him? Hundred percent. I think it set me back very far. I didn't get sober for a long time after that because of the way he handled it. Yeah. Okay. Because I think it, well, because then what he did. So then I show up not long after that. Was it was it because you felt like uh, like he shamed you? Well, listen to what he did afterwards. Okay. So I go back, told him, um, I'm not doing coke anymore. Whatever I said to him, I don't know. And then he, I went in one day and he said, I was always late too, and he would be really pissed about that. But I always had to pay him. And he said, Listen, I can't see you anymore. I think you know why. That's what he said. He didn't say rehab. He didn't say addict. He said, I can't see you. I think you know why. Prescribe me enough ambient to kill myself. Cut off my antidepressants and say goodbye. Wow, that is fucked up. That, so, that is fucked up. whatever it is he was doing, he is now considered a great expert on addiction and I think owns an eating disorder treatment center. He's on staff there. And, I, you know, I have not 
said his name ever. Yeah. But I did get a bill from him when I was about a month sober, and I emailed his office, and I said, um, if you contact me again, I'm reporting you to the American Medical Association. I never, I never, <laughs> that'll, that'll never got, that'll never got another emails. bill. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what else should we, there, mm. there's so many tendrils, tendrils. Uh, thank you. I was, I don't even know. I mean, um, do you want to, to talk about the arc of your hitting your bottom? What was your bottom like? I mean, it, it's it's not terribly interesting. You know, my thing was I was, the last couple of years I was doing coke alone. Um, Best way to do coke. Yeah. You don't got to share. It didn't have to share. Was was suicidal ideation pretty regularly. Never had a plan. Would you say that if you're, because I, I do believe that there are some people who could use cocaine recreationally, hmm. um, very occasionally, mm-hmm. and I, and I I think they're few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, but every person I know who is a coke addict shares the same thing: is that they eventually started doing it more and more by themselves, and the thought of sharing it with anybody was like, unless people were were very wealthy, um, that. You know, I wouldn't say that because uh, I this I, I edited it out of my story, then I tell it in my story, so I've written it, so I I, I shouldn't. It's weird how conflicted I saw him, but my bottom defies that because there was one person who would still do coke with me, one guy. Everyone else thought it was way too depressing, but he or they just weren't around anymore. And he well, he was fine with doing it, and I was the opposite of a coke whore. I would buy the coke, and then and then because he did it with me, nobody else would. I was like, I should sleep with him. You know, I should. That is so... Twisted. Just the inverse of yeah. the stereotype. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Oh, this this pretty girl has coke and she <laughs> wants to turn me on and fuck me again. How do I get out of this? Uh, yeah, no, it was a good deal for him. What? But I got pregnant. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Well, just, this is all going too fast. I know. This is all going too it, fast. It felt that way there's for so, me, too. There's, there's so many questions. That, uh, what? Don't take this the wrong way, but how fucking depressing must you have been? It's impossible to not find somebody that wants to do coke with you. What the fuck were you like when you were on coke? Were you just a sad sack? What? I don't know. Well, well, you know, when you're doing drugs at that level, you run out of a lot of people. Um, I, I had oh, I had dramatic fallings out with people. I would say you're running out of friends who are not addicts. Yes. Ab- yes. Because any friend who is an addict is oh, yeah. going to be like, you know, Anna, we should totally room together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I had I had all my using my friends, my lower companions, and I had a falling out with them. And so they were gone, which was kind of a relief. You know, I didn't have to, like you said, share and, and stuff yeah. like that. And the, and the phrase lower companions is one of the one of the phrases in recovery when you know you're kind of at the near your bottom is you start you start hanging out with people who have no morals, who yeah. um, 
don't really care about you as a person. They're just using you. And yeah, that's funny. I've never heard it defined that way. And even when I just said in it, in my I was opinion, like, yeah, that's, that's, but it's it's it sounds so terrible. I mean, you're really just the phrasing is yes. And, I'm hanging out with people that are lesser than and, me. But the reality is that's where we are right. at that point, and we can't see that that's. We're debasing ourselves and we're hanging around with people who debase others and debase themselves. Well, yeah. And the fact is my lower companions didn't want to hang out with me anymore. So, you know, and I'm sure there are definitely people I I could have done coke with, but he was very, uh, I mean, this guy's a total buffoon. I have no idea what's happened to him. So, I mean, there was no... He just didn't care about anything. And um, and I didn't care about anything, you know. And the way I got pregnant is, you know, I had stopped caring about whether I lived or died a couple years before. You know, in fact, I kept hoping that, like, the Ambien would, you know, would do it. And That's um, super addictive, too. Isn't that a benzo? Yeah. The withdrawal from that can kill you. So, yeah, I did not know that. I was taking 10 times the prescribed amount, but I was taking it all the time. I mean, I took it every night. I never thought of it as fun. I never took it during the day, but I was still on it during the day because there was so much like in my system. And I did just I did just cold turkey and I did outpatient rehab and they were like, you should not have done that. But I didn't have seizures. I What was the withdrawal like? I, I, I just remember that I couldn't sleep. That's all I remember. I You know, I remember getting up at five in the morning and taking walks around you know but i don't remember anything bad physically um so my point is that safe sex like what i hadn't thought of that in a long time either and so and so i got pregnant and i had an abortion and he i think he helped me pay like he wasn't he didn't whatever he was just whatever and i got i stayed high off the pain pills for you know maybe four or five days and then i called my mom and i was like i am a drug addict i just had an abortion and i need to go to rehab and that's how that happened mothers love that call (laughs) they when when you come out of them they're like i hope that there's one of those phone calls in my future (laughs) because i won't feel bonded to this baby until i hear those words come out of their mouth you know, but to her credit, well, she said, I know. I know you're an she addict. knew you, yeah. Um, put your cats in the, L.A. did this to you. Put your cats in the car and come up here. L.A. did this to yeah. you. Yeah. Nice codependent, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My mom is that mother who wants us both back in the womb, but she'll settle for back in the house or she'll settle for up in, in Marin. Um, and she got it with my brother. But, you know, she just she just wants to mother her whole, forever. Um, I don't I don't think that's that terrible. It's gotten, she doesn't put it on me anymore. You know, she used to. She fully accepts that I'm not going to do that. Um, so, yeah. And so thus began the journey in sobriety. And that was May 2nd of 2000. 14 years. I, I went out on November 18th of that year. And I went came back on November 19th. So I'll have 14 years in November 19th. Congratulations. Yeah. Talk about finding other co- other coping mechanisms. How how that? Give me give me some instances of, if you can think of any, of where when you didn't hadn't treated that part of yourself yet, how you'd handle a situation, and today how if a similar situation would come up, how you would handle it. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I I was I was crazy. 
I mean, I'm not using that term clinically, and I'm not using that term as an exaggeration. No, addiction is it. It brings you into a state of insanity. It warps. It warps reality. You know, you don't have to be the the bomb. I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know, um, but there. You don't have to be a, a street person talking to the right. people that aren't there to be insane. Yeah, no, it's true. Or in a state of insanity. Well, and and I be my you know insanity was not limited by any means to when I was on drugs because when I was doing coke, I was I was home. I was like doing weird stuff at home, trying to write, writing. I rewrote a script for two years, but I just rewrote one line. <laughs> And the line was better two years earlier. That's the truth. That's Coke. Yeah. Yeah. I would sit over this computer, and the computer wouldn't make this noise if you hadn't hit a key in 60 seconds. It would go, do you want to save? And it was this, like, beep. And to me, that beep was, like, a megaphone. And so I would live in fear of the beep. So you can't move after you've done a certain amount of Coke. And so my fingers would be over the keyboard going, hit a key, hit a key, hit a key. You don't want to hear that beep. And then beep. And I would, like, jump out of my skin cocaine flying and then i'd sit down i'd go okay you got 58 seconds and then it would happen again that we have a word on the podcast awfulsome (laughs) yeah awesome and awful yeah somehow in the same moment and that vignette that you just painted yeah is fucking awfulsome two years of that that is fantastic it wouldn't be fantastic if you hadn't come out the other side, but exactly, you know. But you don't have you're circling the drain when you're doing that. Like you don't, you're not going to do a lot else, you know, or you kill yourself. So, so, um, you know, how many times a day did you think about killing yourself? You know, I didn't. I never had a plan, and I think that it would be. I. I was never. I never ruminated. I've never. It's more like it's occurred to me as a good option, not a good option, right. but it's occurred to me as better than the way I was. I'm feeling at that moment. And would it be better to call it wanting to die, or was it not that? Yeah, no, wanting to die. I think describes it better. Yeah, uh, to, to me, it starts off with, um, uh, not, not wanting to be alive. Mm-hmm. Then, wanting to be dead. Then constantly thinking about wanting to be dead, then making a plan. That's to really me, that, interesting. That, that to me was, and I was in wanting to to die. And today, when I'm sober, the worst it gets for me is not wanting to live. Yeah. Not wanting to die, but waking up and thinking, you know. And it's not often, but there are patches when yeah. I, when I go through that, and I think. It's it's not as bad as it as it was before, and it's not as sustained as it as it was before. I mean, that's the big difference, right? That you know, I used to think, you know, you get depressed, you're there, what year, two, three, and now it's like that was the biggest revelation about getting sober is you can be depressed at eight a.m. Fine by three. I mean, that blew my mind. Yeah, I didn't know that. And, um, you know, the most painful parts of sobriety, because I've certainly had them, is you becoming, you forget that it's going to end. Because, you know, if it lasts, and I had a depression, you know, that lasted a year. How can you believe it's going to end? Because all your other experiences in sobriety had ended after a few days or a week or a month. 
So when it's around after a year, you're like, this must be who I am. This is what I'm sentenced to. Yeah. Talk about, talk about your depression. Well, it's interesting because I, um, I have recently been re-diagnosed and on a medication that works for the first time in my life. So I was diagnosed with, you know, major depression. Uh, well, I mean, when I got sober, I went to a, you know, my outpatient program sent me to a psychiatrist. And that psychiatrist said, you know, the, yes, you've been on antidepressants. They haven't worked because you've been, you know. Getting loaded. Getting loaded. So we're going to put you on this Effexor. And um, you're going to love it. And I immediately felt better. But I also was so I loved sobriety from minute one. It's gotten, you know, more peaks and valleys since. But my first year, I just was the happiest I've ever been. And so I thought, oh, this works. And um, and I and I had periodic depression the whole time and like whatever they call it cycling like you mm. know and then i thought oh okay I, I would so anyway it really really messed with my sex drive um and i was up at 300 milligrams for a while i don't know how much you know about effects are uh, i did and it yeah it it numbed my libido i've been on a couple of ones that numb are my, you on something num- now yeah yeah i've I, i've taken almost every antidepressant that, that, that you can take i've i've probably taken 70 percent of of them which is which is the greatest hit for um, you? The one that works, the the combination that worked for me for the longest was Celexa, Buspar, and Wellbutrin, mm-hmm. and then we tried a bunch of adjusting, you know, a little bit of this, a little of that one, and eventually replaced uh, Wellbutrin with uh, Lamictal. Um, That's l- my wonder drug. Lamotrigine, yeah. Oh my god! Although the first month that I was on it was i couldn't see it at the time that it was mania but i was looking at pornography about six hours a night every night and couldn't like i couldn't even get up to and and i don't want to get graphic but not masturbating necessarily just uh you know going from site to site and and like couldn't even put the computer down to get up and get myself a glass of water like right. that intensely and then like a switch turning off after a month it it it, it went away so but weird. i couldn't see what i was in until the switch turned off did your wife notice no because i would do this after she went to bed right but i would i would share it with her you know sometimes yeah. when i would come to bed i would say uh, i just wasted six fucking hours looking at pornography right right and but yet you stayed on the medication i did i did because it was it's like people when they experience mania yeah you may realize it's not healthy but you don't want it to fucking end because it's like nature's coke right right and but go ahead so so uh so that's so interesting i had one night of mania one night it was the weirdest thing so and you know, well, I knew it. I knew exactly what was happening. But um, but so I went to a new psychiatrist. Well, I got an amazing therapist like four years ago. Just unbelievable. Unlike anyone I'd ever had. And I credit her so much with my life being great today. Just amazing, this woman. And um, and so... I want to come back yeah. and ask you some questions about what makes her a great psychiatrist. Yes. But go ahead. She, no, she's a therapist. A therapist. And so she... Uh, Finally, she sent me to a psychiatrist. I hated her. It didn't work out. And she knows how I feel about psychiatrists, which is I think they're nightmarish. I think that they are. This is, I don't care that they're pill pushers today. I just, I have never found one that I felt 
understood me, that gave a fuck about what I was saying, and, and that actually listened. And she said, I, find, I, I now know somebody. You're going to go to her. She's real expensive. It's going to take you a long time to get in. It's worth every penny. And I went to this woman. We talked for two hours. And she's amazing. And she said, um, I, you know, I, th- I think you might be bipolar, too. I don't think you're depressed. And, um, and so I was like, great, give me a new diagnosis. Of course, bipolar sounds very scary, but I kind of liked that. I liked <laughs> that I, I had this dramatic, it's so much sexier than depression, you know? And, and so she said, let's try this medication. And I, you know, I've been deeply unsatisfied with Effexor, uh, not only because of the sex drive, but because, um, I don't know when, if, when you were on it, if you ever accidentally skipped a day. Or you get the brain zaps? Uh, I mean, I was like dope sick. I've never been dope sick, but I was, do- yeah. no, I mean, I thought I had to go to the hospital. Really? I just, just spinning, um, you know, n- you know, the room spinning, nauseous. Oh, no. I unable to get out of that. bed. I mean, just horrible. No, you're a bad person if you experience that. Yeah. Well, what's interesting. Because the effectser knows. The effectser knows it that I, I'm inherently unlovable. Yeah. And so it's like, let's make her feel it's that way. It's trying to get out of your body. Um, so what they do if they can't get out of your body is they'll escape out of the pill bottle at night while you're sleeping. Yes. So that you're not able to take them. Yeah, I would forget. It, this year of depression, I forgot like six times. I just would forget. To, it was the craziest thing. I've been taking it since 2000. I would just forget. And even if it was like some subconscious self-sabotage, it didn't make sense because I can't stand being sick. So I was very unsatisfied with effects or anyway. And so she said, let's try you on this other thing and see how you respond. And I just responded. And, you know, and she said, I think what you've been calling depression is just your mood not being stable. Um, and... And because I never had highs and I don't have typical highs and lows, I didn't think bipolar. And I didn't really know that there was bipolar, so more like too. Ge- more like kind of gently rolling uh, hills or yeah. not, not necessarily. Because bipolar one is like Mount Everest to Death Valley. Yeah. And bipolar two is just kind of, uh, I think, less less extreme. And to me, life is, life is gently rolling hills. And- right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just... I didn't, and, and also she said, Effexor is mostly for anxiety. Your anxiety is connected to your depression. It's connected to your mood. Um, and so I, we have done the slowest taper ever, and I am now at 37.5 milligrams of Effexor every other day, and next week I'm going to every three days. It is a gift. And and you've started taking the Lamictal. Yeah, I'm at 200 milligrams of Lamictal, and That's it is working. Oh, it Good. works. Good yeah. for how long have you been taking it? I guess about four or five months. And I had one night of mania. It was so weird. What did you do? I came home from therapy. I was telling my therapist, um, Lita, how how I was happy, like really happy. And she just was like, that's great. She's such a good therapist. That and you said, but no, you don't understand. No, all I, I was just, and, and since then I've talked about being happy a lot. But I... I got in my car and I got really scared. I said, you know, because I think I'm jinxing. If I say I'm really happy, it's going to go away. So I'm like, okay, that was, what's going on? I don't know. I went home and I did not feel okay. It it, it didn't feel good. Um, I, I sent an email to someone and then I just sort of looked up mania. I looked up, I Googled Lamictomania. Turns mm-hmm. out lots of people experience that. I'm sure you did some Googling when that happened. Maybe no, not. No, I was looking at porn. 
<laughs> you couldn't break away. Unless one girl had said to the other one, you know, Lamictal causes mania. Here's a link people should check out. I don't think uh, it would have penetrated, I, I don't think your it brain. penetrated my brain. Yeah. So I did that. And then I did a really amazing thing, which is I put myself to bed at 730. I said, I don't trust myself right now. Wow. Yeah. And also, it was clearly not typical mania because I went to sleep. So it was hypomania, maybe. I don't know. That's, I think that's what I experienced because I would sleep. You know, mania, mania, there, there's very little sleep. You're buying islands. And, and, yes. You know. And for me, it was more just when I was up, I was doing things compulsively. Um, yeah. That, damn, that wasn't my experience. I just felt manic. Let's talk about the, the psychiatrist. What what it, it is about her that that you like? Well, I, I love both my therapist and my psychiatrist, okay. and I what think it, they're both important. Yes. Talk about what what it is that you like about them. Well, I mean... Especially compared to the ones that you didn't like. You know, and I've liked my therapists in general. I had a very damaging one. I lived in New York from 2007 to 2010. And, you know, the state of mind of this this therapist has a lot of influence over you. That is an understatement. That is an understatement. And there are some, in fact, she, the, the woman who wrote this book about sociopaths uh, said there are sociopaths in the mental health profession. Absolutely. And they, because life is a game to them, uh-huh. some of them, that is a high for them to be able to manipulate uh, people who are vulnerable. And she gave an example of this woman who who destroyed um, people in in her care, you know, in the facility mm. that she worked at because they were the patients of somebody whose career she envied. So she's like, oh, if I destroy that patient of wow. hers, that will reflect badly on her. And she couldn't even see that this was a, or didn't care that this was a person. So yeah, there are, wow. I've gotten emails from people who've had horrible experiences with, um, that's why I would love to have like a list of warning signs that you should not go back and see this person. The one that, that I would definitely say is if this person ever wants to uh, associate with you socially outside well, of your... Sure. Oh, well, you'd be surprised what people oh my do God. because sociopaths, they have that charm and they can manipulate and that's how they get their, their high. And so... They can think of a way with this vulnerable person, all the buttons to push to make them think that this is actually genuine caring. And it's under the guise of that until it's not. And then the person feels incredibly betrayed and is probably even worse off than before they came in. I mean, I have heard about that. I'm grateful to say all my therapists have had great boundaries, you know, which is Mine have too. Yeah. Um... Uh, but, you know, like the damaging guy, it, I don't know that there are obvious warning signs. He was uh, his now that I go to a woman who is so positive and and no matter what I came to her with, I would leave going. Um, wow, it's really even this really bad thing is really great. And I needed that so badly. And he was a guy. Well, one thing he would do to me every week, you know, because constantly as a love avoidant, I meet men who, I don't mean this to sound obnoxious, really like me, and I'm not interested. And I don't think that's all love avoidance. I think that I I have, I am somebody who cannot go along with something unless I'm full force. 
It's true with work. It's true with anything. And so I know a lot of people who are like, he's all right. Okay. And I'm not going to do that. So, and so, and I'm aware of like what I don't like pretty quickly. And so every single time I told him, oh, you know, I went out with this guy. I don't know. I went out with him a couple of times. I just, I don't like him. He'd tell me that it was my fear of intimacy every single time. And that made me feel terrible. You know, and with this, with Lita, you know, I talk about it and she go, why? And then we talk about it. She goes, that's very reasonable. Yeah. So yeah. if you had said to him, well, when he sits down and he holds my hand and he looks in my eyes, I want to puke. Right. That Maybe. Be, yeah. That might be something to look at. Maybe right. there's a fear of intimacy. Right. Yeah. No, they were just like, I find him really boring. You know, he doesn't make me laugh. Whatever it was. Yeah. Worse things, you know. So, you know, and I, I just, I was very depressed those years anyway. And and so I don't know what the obvious warnings, you know, that he seemed that his outlook was depressed was, you know, and I, he was not a sociopath. Like, he didn't want to destroy me. He wanted to help me. Unfortunately, I have experienced that therapists covered under insurance have not been good. And it's the ones that cost me money that are worth every penny. You know? I don't know. Has that been your experience? Uh, partially. Partially. Um, I had a fantastic therapist uh, two and a half years ago who was actually in the process of getting her license. I found her, I googled low-fee therapy because I'm always telling the listeners, uh, if you don't have money, if you, uh, try googling low-fee therapy or calling 211 and you can often find low-fee or free services in your area. And when my whole mom stuff came up two and a half years ago, um, I wasn't currently in therapy and I was like, I need to find a, a therapist. And I did it, and I found the San Fernando Valley Counseling uh, Family really? Counseling Center. And this woman was one of the most empathic. I felt so safe when I went to see her. It was so, uh, it was exactly what I needed. And she eventually moved out of state, so I only got to see her for six months. But it it was, it was like if you imagine a, a, like a red hot, branding iron she felt like a tank mm. of water mm. when i would go in that's what it that's what it felt like and i told her everything all the thoughts i was thinking all the f- feelings i had cuz i don't know about you but recovering from sex abuse is not always pretty mm-hmm. it's not the thoughts that go on in your head um can sometimes feel shameful um can be weird. My fantasies mm-hmm. were um, fantasies I'd never had before, like involving mother figures. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just felt, uh, which I, I imagine a lot of survivors do, I felt dirty. I felt mm-hmm. weird. Mm-hmm. I f- and uh, I felt safe sharing all that stuff with her. And she, and she felt, uh, I felt like she uh, wasn't judging me. And she was a Fucking free in, therapist, yeah. A free therapy. Well, it was low. It was low fee, right? Right. But she said there are people in there that uh, she works on a sliding scale, and some people she charges as little as twenty five dollars. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So uh, it's and the Maple Center. When I when that guy said to me he couldn't see me anymore, and I knew I needed a therapist, I went to another one, paid the two hundred fifty dollars. At the end of the session, she goes, "I think I'd have the same issues with you that he had." 
that'll be $250. And I went to the Maple Center, which is an amazing resource here in Beverly Hills. Do you, do you know that place? Uh, no. It's, it's just like it, you know? And I went, mm. and this guy, I went and I cried, and I told him the whole thing. We finished. He was so amazing. I'm like, I found a solution. And at the end, he goes, well, that was my last hour of my internship. So it was like, so he couldn't see me. There was a reason. Maybe I, there was a reason. It was either yeah. that or he was leaving. Um, he was amazing. I can't remember. I think I just didn't have a therapist. Did he then say that? No, that's my last hour of this. You have forced me out of the business. <laughs> no, but I have had two therapists. I had one retire, psych- one psychiatrist retire at like the age of 30. And then I had one move out of state, one therapist. So yeah, I've been a lot to handle. So would it be fair to say that it's a feeling of, <clears throat> them being empathic and understanding that is important for you or what how could you express what it is that 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 separates a decent therapist from a great therapist or psychiatrist I think empathy is important but I don't even know if I think that's the most important thing I think well well brilliance like it was 1 hour in my therapist's office and I'm like this woman is freaking brilliant she went to Harvard. You know, I've got I've got the fetish. So I was predisposed to like her. You're a shrink fucker. I know. I know. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. You know, I by the way, dating those boys at Harvard, I met plenty of idiots who went there. Not the ones I dated, book, but book smart has nothing to do with yeah. common sense. So so um but she I think her brilliance, you know, there's nothing I tell her, no matter how like how not fully formed that she doesn't completely understand and you know and and i mean i relate to both she and, and dr bernstein haas my psychiatrist who i get to call by her first name i think that's pretty cool yeah you know um do, do you get the feeling and uh, sorry to cut you off but do you get the feeling when you find a, a, a therapist or a, a psychiatrist who's really good that they've lived through some shit no it's no? crazy is the opposite i think they're perfect and i was totally shocked when my therapist shared with me um we were talking about food i have i had some chronic pain issues that have thankfully abated but i think that's very related to abuse and trauma i think it's totally do you have any of that oh yeah so um and so but we would talk about it in here i was trying everything possible and i had never tried my diet and she said, you know, I quit sugar and I quit blah, blah, blah. And um, I'll tell you, when I tried it again, I got really depressed. And it was like, you got depressed? You? Um, when, of course, the truth is, the people who go into psychiatry, uh, you know, it's like they say criminals and cops are, you know, closely related, you know, crazy people and therapists are, yeah. that's what their interest is. Yep. You know, so, so, but no, I, I have this idea that they don't ever experience anything but great mental health <laughs> and happiness every second. Yeah. What else would you like to talk about? I don't know. It's just so, I mean, you know how you're just talking about the, 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 I think the firearm in the in the soothing bath. What were you saying? It was a oh, great the, metaphor. The, yeah, the uh, the hot iron. Hot iron. That's what this feels like. I'm having like you know I have trouble being in the moment, but I'm like this is going to end. We can keep talking. No, I mean, at a certain point it has yeah. to end, no matter yeah. how much you know. Which is weird because I sort of you know I had fear around doing this. Really? Well, yeah. I mean, fear about uh, exposing myself in certain ways. 
What were you what were you afraid we were going to see? I don't th- I that I would feel that I would feel shame talking. I, I'm very open. Like I say I'm a chronic confessionalist. I what I write about there's nothing that I've said that I haven't written about, except I've been really reticent about talking about the medication thing. For some reason, it's like this one area. Why? I don't know. Maybe that just, you know, that that inherent societal stigma about mental health versus addiction, you know, that even though people think the stigma is the opposite, they think that people have empathy for mental health and, and you know, they think it, of addiction it, as a moral issue. Right. I would argue that in LA in like my circles or whatever to be an addict is cool but to be it's a, fine yeah we're all addicts to be you a know? sad sack is and especially something like you're not depressed you're you know bipolar that um I still tell people all the time but I have been reticent to write about it though I have a little bit I've alluded to it um even though depression is a part of bipolar yeah it just sounds less serious you know like we were talking about um and and so I don't know. I mean, and I've listened to some episodes where, um, well, I had Mike Carano on my podcast, like, and I listened to you had what Mike Carano on my podcast. Oh, yeah. And I remember his episode where, you know, it was fascinating, but he's just sort of like, he was just a live wire. I he mean, kind of like was, fell apart. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if the, the listeners, if you haven't listened to the episode with Mike Carano, um, listen to it, yeah. especially if you want to hear an episode of somebody who is in the middle of something and completely kind of baffled and overwhelmed by yeah. it. And, uh, yeah, he had, he was. And now that I know him. Mm-hmm. He's he's somewhat like that all the time, <laughs> you know. And then I just had on my podcast um, McBattencourt, and I almost couldn't get through your whole episode with him. It just it was hard, you know. It was intense. You know, I don't know if that was the most intense one you've done, but it was the most intense one I've heard. It's certainly one of the most dramatic stories. Um, we've had some others that were, I call them cinematic. Yeah. Where you're like, this could be, this could be a movie, all this stuff, because it's so, it's almost larger, larger than life. But yeah, we've, there's a, probably about a dozen episodes that, that we've done where you're, it's just kind of, you can't believe that somebody is still standing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I would say it was hard for me to meet him after that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it just, it was so, it was so painful. What I mean, and I don't mean to come here and talk about other people. I mean, these oh. guys have been amazing guests on, on my podcast. But but so, you know, so with some familiarity of, of things that were painful to hear, you know, I had, you know, trepidation, but super a lot of excitement as well. Cla- clarify that for me. You Was it that you were afraid that you were going to bring up sadness in other people hearing your story or that yours wasn't going to be dramatic enough? Or No, what? I never worried that it wasn't going to be dramatic enough. Okay. Um, it was, okay, well, then let's go back to that pity thing that, that I was re- referred to. One of the really horrible things my dad would do to me when I cried as a kid is... You know, and this is the sort of sociopath thing. He, but, but yes, he had feelings. He didn't know what to do. And so rather than saying, like, why are you sad? He would just laugh. And, you know, he was 
depressed all the time. And so I, my mom would go, you know, I think she was like, well, my depressed husband's laughing for the first time in a year. And so she would laugh. And then my brother would go, oh, my God, my miserable parents are laughing. And so I have memories of, you know, driving in to up to Lake Tahoe with like them all, me crying and them all laughing. I mean, it's like one of the most damaging things that happened That's to me. horrible. Yeah. Yeah. No, to be near Lake Tahoe. I mean, you were a crybaby, <laughs> but Lake Tahoe is an awful it's place. It's a horrible place. Elevation. Oh, I'm so sorry, Anna, that... that uh... He's such a nightmare. Um, well, oh, but sorry, but the way he would do before that is he would, ugh, he would like jut out his lip and go, oh, my poor baby, like in a really patronizing, pitying way. And so this, as soon as I feel like someone has pity for me, I want to punch. You know, and did you did you feel anything when I just said thirty seconds ago? I'm so sorry. The tiniest bit, but yeah. you didn't do it in that way. That there's a way people have of doing it, which is that they and they make the sad face. They make the sad face, and it's like they've never experienced anything right. so painful. And you didn't do that. But yeah, it's like even despite all this horrible stuff that I'm talking about, I don't want anyone to ever feel like they can feel sorry for me. I think most people don't. You know, when you when you talk to people who have disabilities, nothing gets on their nerves more than somebody saying, "You're a real inspiration. Right. You're, you know, you're good. Good for you. Look at you." And people can't see that they don't want to be patronized. You know, sometimes what really makes somebody laugh who has a disability, you know, is to is to say. I'll race you. I'm going to kick your ass. You know, because they, they they want, I don't know how to put into words what it is, but they, they, well, they don't want to be treated with kid gloves. And did you ever read that book, Stumbling Upon Happiness? Mm-mm. It's a great book. There are all these books are always written by someone named like Daniel Goldman or Daniel Goldman. They're always these smart Jews. Like they, all their names sound the same. It's written by one of the Daniel Goals somethings. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he talks about, I always try to summarize it and I summarize it badly. But one of the things he explains is that the brain of a person who is not disabled or has not just lost somebody, we assume that they are so much sadder about it than they actually are because it's that myopic thing I was talking about. It's all we see. We don't see the rest of that person. We just see the wheelchair. And we don't get that they've got a whole life besides that and that it doesn't feel the way we project onto it that that we think it they feel. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Um we're talking about something else, pity. Yeah. So so I think it's that, you know, that that scared me. You know, a little bit that I wouldn't be able to be as honest as I you know, because I like honesty in a controlled environment, as in mm-hmm. my writing, my podcast, you know, so so um, I have so many defense mechanisms up. And, you know, even when I share in um, group settings, it's not that it's it's never rehearsed, but it's fucking polished. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And And I'm not somebody who, like, I was shocked when I was talking about my therapist and I got, like, emotional because i'm not really someone who gets emotional with gratitude because i don't even let myself really go there i think you know and i have things about crying because of that stuff with my dad so 
It took every ounce of my fiber not to jut my lower lip out and just now and mock and mock. <laughs> well, and that also is when people, I don't know if you experienced this, but people say to, to people who struggle with addiction and are sober, wow, I'm so impressed with you. You have so much willpower. And I always go, first of all, I have no willpower. Like, check me out with s'mores in front of me. Um, I just, I don't want to drink. I don't want to do drugs. Um, it has nothing to do with willpower. And this is not hard. Drinking and doing drugs was really hard. This isn't. Comparatively speaking, this is easy. And I think, too, that they forget that we lost the ability to keep ourselves sober years ago. We will never regain it. Right. But what we do is we do the work in these group settings, and the byproduct of that is sobriety. Yeah. And that's why we continue to go to these support groups yeah. is because it's like you don't just wash your car and it's clean for the rest of its life. You have to keep washing the car. But the good news is, at least for me and I think a lot of people, is you enjoy going there because you feel felt and you feel a sense of meaning and purpose. And that is what re replaces the desire to get loaded. But if that meaning and that purpose starts to go away that desire to drink will come right back. So it's always, yeah. it's always there. It's yeah. I mean, yes, absolutely. It, it's just whether or not it's an ember or it's a raging inferno, but that ember I think is always in there if you're an addict. Well, I don't know what your experience was, but mine was that the desire to drink and do drugs went away. Like I had my tonsils out when I was 20 mm -hmm. and it felt like that. It yeah, felt like a surgical operation. That's that about two months in. That's where it went away for me, and it and it hasn't come back. But I've talked to enough people who stopped doing the things you're supposed oh. to do, and the desire to drink came back. Yeah, and they drank, and many of them died. Yeah, and we're talking people who had you know twenty, sometimes thirty years of sobriety, and were help but all of a sudden they got a new job that they became the most important thing in the world and they couldn't find time to be of service to others or do the other stuff that that we do and uh yeah it's, it's, i hear that i hear that as well and i know people who have done that and died and i think the longer you're sober the more painful it gets you know it's those 20 year people how long are you sober again 11 yeah yeah what do you mean when you say that the longer you're sober, the more painful it gets? Well, you know, those people that I know of and knew who had 20 something years and decided to drink um, died especially quickly or went through a pain I couldn't believe as opposed to somebody, whatever, who had six years. months of sobriety. Yeah. yeah or even yeah. under 10 or whatever. So, because it's sort of like, I think a lot of those people, it's like, they're not coming back. You know, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to generalize. Uh, we had a guest on the show, uh, Greg Cheever, who um, had 18 years of sobriety and he relapsed, you know, typical thing, big job, too many hours, couldn't find time to be a part of the support groups anymore and uh, started doing heroin again. And he was out for nine years and... Uh, has made it back wow. and, and has really thrown himself into you know recovery again and is helping a lot of people and is like one of the happiest people I know but he had to retire from that job from that job because he knew he couldn't 
stay sober. He was actually fired, but he knew this this is not something I should go back into because I can't I can't balance Do both. I can't yeah. balance both. This is horrible. When people often in support groups, and this is where it happens the most, share something deeply painful that they're experiencing. My first thought is not, oh my God, I feel so bad for you. It's, oh my God, that could happen to me. Oh yeah. Okay, that's normal. Oh, fuck yeah. Okay. Somebody just emailed me, and maybe I'll read this email uh, at the end of this episode. Actually, no, I'm probably going to have read it before this. Um, But this person shared that they feel terrible when they listen to an episode where somebody went through horrible things and it makes them feel better about themselves because their life isn't that fucked up. Oh, yeah. And I said, if that makes you a bad person, I'm the most evil motherfucker (laughs) on the planet. I watch Hitler documentaries when I'm down because I'm like, I'm a good guy. (laughs) I'm a good guy. How do you feel? Okay, I have this when somebody kills themselves is I'm mentally healthy. Look how well I'm doing. I think that's the most human thing in the world. I think it's the most human thing in the world. And it's a fight sometimes to, at least for me, to separate me weighing my own shit, not filtering their experience through my own shit. Right. To just have it in that moment be just about them without me going, "Eh, how does this reflect on me? What am I, you know? Right. What's going to happen to me, you know? Um or thank God it's them and not me. Well, but I also think in a more benign way at meetings, one of the great things, if you're going through it, it is um, is that perspective restoring. Because you're going, I, you know, this I'm is I'm the just, only one with problems. Yeah, you hear stuff that's so much worse. And you go, oh. And, and also working with n- people who are new to the journey does it for me. It reminds you how fucked up you were. Yeah, and and, how, and are a lot of the times. Like, yes. I relate to every bit, pretty much, that I hear. Yeah. And the lack of perspective that they have, yeah. being new, that they think all their problems are going to last forever. Yeah. And that everything about them is unique, and there's and they're the only one who's ever thought, lived, or felt yeah. what they're experiencing. Yeah, yeah. And they don't understand sometimes that's why we laugh yeah. When they share something. Yeah. Because we've been there. We're not laughing at them. We're laughing with them. And that's what I love about support groups. Is there anything more cathartic than when somebody shares something really fucking painful and fucked up, awfulsome? Yeah. Somebody shares an yeah. awfulsome moment yeah. and the room roars. And then you see that the, the intensity of that problem begin to melt away on that person's face. I love it. I love that too. And, and I, and I remember one of, you know, when I went to rehab, one of the first meetings I went to in there, um, people were, these guys were laughing about their suicide attempts, and I was so sad and so scared. I was like that for about three weeks, and then I was like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. But I was so angry at them. How dare you laugh about that, you know? <laughs> and I just, I still remember the horror. I still remember what they looked like. I haven't seen them since. But but just like, that is not funny you know <laughs> you wouldn't have liked this podcast back then <laughs> no no and, and i told you frankly i find it hard to listen to at times yeah a lot of people a lot of people do say that my wife's is like eh, it gets too sad and dark sometimes I'm like yeah i just I remembered i talked to my therapist about it yeah we we talked about that exact same thing she she's heard it yeah yeah 
um, you know, because also, you know, and I told you this when you were online, it was, I don't know that my podcast would exist if this didn't, because you were such a motivator. I couldn't believe that people could do this. Wow. I told you this once upon a time. Did you? I yeah, I didn't say it with memory. the same gravitas that I just yeah. said it, but oh, absolutely. I mean, you were, you were the path that I saw. Um, you know, in the way I, I think a lot of comedians see Mark Maron, it's like, oh my mm. God, he did that. I can He do inspired that. me, yeah. He, he didn't shy away from the darkness and talking about stuff on his podcast. And I was like, oh, wow. Maybe I could do a, a, a podcast and talk about this. And, uh, and then it just evolved into, into what it is. But um, thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Seriously. Um, I feel that I've talked for so long that no, no one's listening anymore. <laughs> okay. why, don't, why don't we go out on, um, let's do this. I've never done this before. You just go through your fears. Mm-hmm. Alternate fear, love, fear, love, fear, love, and I'm just going to fade out. I okay. Mean, but before we do that, I want to thank you for for coming in and being a guest and being so supportive. And you've written nice, you wrote a really nice thing in the Huffington Post a while back about the first time this was at PodFest. And you're like, give him a bigger room next year. Oh, that's right. Yeah, well, I, I feel that way. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and they did give me a bigger room this year. Nice. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. it was because of what I wrote. It was exactly. <laughs> they called it the Anna David room. Um, I'm so grateful you had me on. As you know, I really wanted to come on. And, um, and we've been we've been trying to make this happen for uh, for a while, but just scheduling, and then I forget. Mm-hmm. And, and your dad called me, and he said she doesn't deserve it. <laughs> Don't have her on. She's just going to talk bad about me. Yes, if he knew how to listen to or read anything I did. So. That's the nice thing about podcasts is if we talk uh, badly about our parents, there's a good chance, even if they wanted to, they would be flummoxed at how to f- how to listen. Exactly. Exactly. My um, yes. Luckily, my my parents really don't read or anything I write or anything. So mm-hmm. it gives me a lot of freedom. Good. Well, give us some fears and some loves. Okay. Okay. Um, as I told you, the fears were a lot easier than the loves. Ugh, okay. I fear I'll never experience true love. Um, I love the way my mom talks to children and animals. I fear my mom dying. I love falling asleep on the couch. I fear I have halitosis and don't know it and no one will tell me. I have the same thing. (laughs) I love how warm nights make me feel always young. I fear I don't know how to be in the moment without distracting myself. I love reading work that makes me wonder how someone's even capable of doing that. I fear people suddenly changing their mind about me. I love bingo because it's the only kind of gambling I understand. Many, many thanks to Anna David. And uh, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast. If you feel so inclined, uh, you can go to the website, mentalpod.com, and you can make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, uh, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. Uh, It means the world to me and it helps keep the podcast going. You can also uh, support us financially by uh, next time you shop at Amazon, enter through uh, the search portal on our homepage and uh, Amazon will give us a couple of nickels if you buy something and it doesn't cost you anything. And um, 
speaking of search boxes, if you're ever looking for a specific topic you'd like to listen to, um, just type it in the search box for our website and you type in bipolar or, uh, you know, OCD and uh, episodes or blogs that cover that should uh, should pop up. This is an email. Oh, and also you can support us non-financially by spreading the word about the podcast through social media. That really, really helps. Um, and I, I greatly appreciate those of you that, that do that. And you can write a, a nice review on iTunes and give us a good rating. Uh, this is an email that I got that just really touched me. It is from uh, a person in the military. And they write, uh, Dearest friend, how are you today? Uh, I'm sure you are doing well. I was wondering if I can know you better. I am Colonel Marcus Luthen of the U.S. Army, presently working in Afghanistan. Um, I saw your profile and sincerely wished to know you better and would like to have a good relationship with you. I am beyond flattered that um, not only somebody in the military but a colonel um, would would want to reach out and get to know me better. Um I have so much respect for the hard work that our people in the military do and um, that he would want to get to know a civilian, you know, not only somebody lower, I mean, how low on the chain of command am I? I'm below a private. Anyway, he writes, uh, I have great plans for both of us. If you are interested, please reply for more future communication and details. Um, also tell me more about yourself and your nationality. I, I guess he doesn't know that I'm American. Um, he'll probably be happy to know that. Uh, or maybe he wants to know about my ancestry. Um, in which case I sh- should let him know that I'm Irish and French and, uh, stereotypically I am a pompous alcoholic. Um, he writes, I will tell you more about my intentions when I receive your reply. Have a nice time and remain blessed. I will be happy to read from you. You can write me with my following email address, marcusslut at gmail.com for more secured communication. I've got to assume that whatever it is, because it's a secured communication, that this is top secret, and I probably shouldn't even be reading this. Um, oh my God, I hope I'm not going to. This isn't going to be like a WikiLeaks thing. I think I'm just going to hedge my bets, though, and I'm going to start, because he he has plans for me, I'm going to start wearing camouflage and learn how to fly a, a plane or drive a boat. I will keep you guys updated on my relationship with the colonel. But uh, in the meantime, um, wish me luck as a soldier of fortune. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, Sam. He is gay and he's in his 20s. And I just wanted to read um, a portion of this. He writes, A couple of months ago, my boyfriend told me he was raped by a guy he met in an after party. My boyfriend said he felt very ashamed and did not want to talk about it. When I told him he should go to the police and report it, he refused and told me he didn't want to deal with the issue. Every time I've tried to ask him what actually happened that night, wanting to know how he managed to end up in a situation like that, he also absolutely does not want to talk about it. Because he never went to the police or doesn't want to talk about it, I've been wondering if he was actually cheating on me, consenting to the sex, and called it rape just so he would seem innocent. 
Uh, this is something that I am terrified of asking my boyfriend because he is probably right and I should trust him, but I keep wondering if he actually did cheat on me. And Sam, I'm so glad that you shared this because it is a really, really important thing for rape survivors to be believed by not only the people, to be believed by everybody, but especially by people they trust. And there is often a mean part in their brain that is telling them that they were to blame or they shouldn't have been here or they shouldn't have been there, which is never the case. It doesn't matter if you're in a in a dark alley, you know, wearing the skimpiest of things. That does not give anybody the right to rape you. People who survive being raped have a really hard time talking about it. They're afraid of being judged. They don't know often where the truth is because a brain that's gone through uh, that kind of through sexual trauma is often very confused. It's trying to protect itself, so it's telling itself certain types of lies, uh, all kinds of stuff. The last thing that your boyfriend needs is you pressuring him to do anything. Let him know that you love him. Let him know that you support him. You might even apologize for pressuring him in the beginning and say, you know, I didn't know how difficult. It is for somebody to have survived that and just know if you ever want to talk about it, I am here and I support you 100%. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Melmi Momo and she writes, recently I've been chosen to take part in a research study through a state-run medical school on bipolar disorder. The study required me to be free of my current medication for six weeks prior to get a proper baseline. Needless to say, it's been a crazy struggle for me, memory loss, mood disturbance, etc. At the same time, my dog has recently been put on Prozac for her anxiety issues. She is so happy, doing so well, following all directions. While I am losing my brain, my dog is gaining hers. Thank you for that. I didn't know dogs could take antidepressants, but I guess why not? They have anxiety. My God, Herbert is nothing but anxiety. And I don't know why, because he doesn't even have to go outside to shit. He just finds a nice part in the hallway. And he doesn't even shit in one part of the hallway. It's like it's like he wants you to play shit detective. He'll leave a trail. You know, it's <laughs> it starts off big and then the pieces just get littler the the further along. Oh my god. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Funky Monkey. And he is straight, he's in his 20s, and he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, he was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, when I was seven or eight, I was sleeping at a friend's house. He went out with his parents to get dinner as I stayed home with his elder brother. He told me to lay next to him as he watched the television. I didn't think much of it at the time, uh, so I did as he said. He started to move closer to me as he whispered into my ear. He was asking me to touch him all over his body. I didn't understand what exactly he wanted me to do uh, to do it for, but I did it. He touched my penis and forcefully started sucking my dick and asked if he could fuck me. I was saved by the sound of his parents and my friend pulling into the driveway. I didn't say anything or tell anyone, and I still haven't. I didn't know until I was around 14 what actually happened, and as I think back on it, I like the thoughts that pop into my head. This is strange, considering I am completely straight. It is not strange. That's really, really common. Um, 
He's been emotionally abused. He writes, all throughout my adolescence, I was told that I would never amount to anything and that I was better off dying by my mother and grandfather. It's convinced me that death is all that awaits me. Uh, no, your mother and grandfather are terrible people. Fuck them. Stay alive. Um, any positive experiences with your abusers? I still love my mother and grandfather because no matter what they do to me, I feel like it isn't their fault. Um, I feel as if I am to blame for all the things they said. Well, because they were told you all those things while your brain was being molded. And, um, and you know what? I think a lot of us as kids, it's easier to believe that than to believe the awful truth, which is that we are in the care of fucking sick predators, um, be it emotional, physical, sexual. Um, darkest thought. I often find myself daydreaming about beating in the skulls of all the people around me, friends, family, strangers, and enemies. I want to murder them in the most brutal way possible and fuck their bodies as I come all over them. Of course you've got rage built up inside you. My God, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? And by the way, I want to give you kudos for the amount of calories you're burning in uh, taking this out. I think you should create a, a whole workout called the uh jizz, the jizz bomb uh <laughs> jizz bomb massacre workout i would totally if i did if i wouldn't get caught oh my god grab a bat work on the upper body i, don't know, I think i'd get tired of it after about a day or two i think i think it would start to get old but you would be ripped people would be like dude how'd you get abs like that like all you gotta do is hate everybody. Just get on, get onto a bus. Holy shit! Take a baseball bat onto a bus. You wouldn't even have to move your feet. I think you. I think you call uh, Daily Burn, and you submit your idea for the Jizz Bomb Massacre workout. You give me fifty percent then I don't have to fucking keep asking you guys at the end of every episode to become a monthly donor. And we rid the world of fucking assholes and we all get ripped. I'm, I'm going to put this on a sticket and I'm going to give it, I'm going to let it, I'm just going to let it swish around my brain for a week because this might be a bad idea. But I got to tell you on the surface, this is a win-win. Nice clean planet, orderly. I don't see how this could be bad. Darkest Secrets. When I was 13, I watched my friend's mother shower as I masturbated, fantasizing about how I would fuck her if I were older. Uh, I notice now just how fucked up I am, and I blame it all on myself when I know it's from the lack of love I had as a child. Um, I yearned for love but got none. Sexual tendencies were my only solace. Um, if it makes you feel any better, I saw... Uh, the reflection of a woman changing one time. I was 15. She was probably 50. We were on a bus, and for some reason, the reflection in the in the bathroom, you could see it on a wall outside of the bathroom, and I just happened to notice. I could kind of see her silhouette, and she was in her bra changing, and I got a boner, and as soon as she came out of the bathroom, I went in there and jerked off thinking about her titties. So, buddy, you are not alone, and... Do not feel shame. And give me 50% of the Jizz Bomb Massacre workout. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. 
I've always wanted to be grabbed by a bunch of random people and dragged into a van where I would then be taken to an abandoned house. As they take off the bag covering my face, I would notice men and women masturbating over me as I lie there helpless. I want a woman to sit on my face as I lick her pussy for hours on end as the people around me orgasm and come everywhere. By the way, a woman sitting on your face, awesome, for hours on end, I think it's going to get old. I think... I think the restricted breathing is going to get old after about 45 minutes or three minutes. Uh, He writes, I feel relieved sharing this. I've never been able to tell anyone in fear of being judged uh, or cast out. I'm glad you feel better. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my mother that I love her, but I'm afraid that she will throw me away due to the fact that she has never loved me. Buddy, I think you're you're going to a dry well with your mom. And there's no water there, but there are a lot of people in the world that will love you. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I want to be able to sleep at night without being afraid of waking up. Have you shared these things with others? I've always been afraid that I would be cast out if I told anyone about being raped as a child. I feared that they would blame me and think I'm weird. The feeling of loneliness drives me mad and it forces me to change my personality every time I feel the slightest hint of neglect from at anyone, even if I don't know them. I want to encourage you to contact the Rape and Incest National Network. It's org, and you can get free counseling if you are a sex abuse survivor, no matter how long ago it happened. And they have a ton of great resources. Uh, also, oneinsix.org, uh, the number one, I-N, the letter, the number six, uh, .org. They're a great organization that has a ton of resources as well. Um, you are not alone in this and you are not abnormal. You are a normal person reacting to an abnormal environment. That sounded kind of good. Good for you, Paul. You didn't sound dumb. This is an awful moment. I fucking love this one. This is from Trixie. She writes, I think my therapist is getting sick of my shit. I was telling her for the hundredth time about how my depression prevents me from getting anything done, but my anxiety makes me sick with worry about it. She responded, responded, did you ever think you're just lazy? <laughs> Let that sink in. You are paying a woman and she says, did you ever think that you're just lazy? Wow. If you have not fired her yet, Fire her. Fire her. She does not understand depression and anxiety or mental health. This is also an awful moment filled out by Riley. She writes, I've been struggling with depression for many years and I recently stopped taking Abilify. Oh, good luck. Uh, which has been a rough experience to say the least. I had the same. A few days ago, I pulled myself together and put on a happy face for a long shift at work, but the entire time I felt so fake, smiling and chatting with customers as my mind was full of darkness and despair. I had to go out to my car at one point in the night so I could cry without my coworkers seeing me. As I sat in my car with tears and snot running down my face, I turned on the radio. At that very moment, the announcer said that a study from the CDC had just come out showing a strong link between depression and a weaker immune system, which, he explained, apparently increases the risk of developing cancer later in life. I think I actually said aloud something to the effect of, you got to be fucking kidding me. And in that moment, I just burst out laughing. 
It was so awfulsome to be sitting alone in my car crying because I was so depressed, only to have the radio tell me, oh yeah, and as if you didn't feel shitty enough already, you're probably going to get cancer too, you sack of shit. Thanks for that little ray of sunshine, NPR. And thank you for that, Riley. That, oh, that made me laugh. This is a happy moment from Tommy, and he writes, uh, Yesterday I told my best friend that I was molested by my older sister when I was eight and when I was 11 by my best friend. It went very well. I don't know why I thought it wouldn't. The friend I told is more or less as messed up as me, and it was a nice bonding moment, which means a lot for me because I haven't had a lot of those. I love when people open up. I love it when they open up and they're met with love and compassion and acceptance. It is so fucking beautiful. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Summer. She's straight. She's 18. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, my grandpa caught me masturbating when I was around 10 or 11. He tried to show me how to do it, and I was so ashamed of myself that I told him never to tell anyone. And by the way, your grandfather didn't catch you masturbating. Your grandfather interrupted you masturbating and then leveraged your shame to abuse you. Although you probably already know that. But uh, Later, when I was in seventh grade, he would try to touch me when I would go to sleep. He would visit on weekends from his job, and I remember that I was afraid to fall asleep and scared he would hate me. One night he touched me and I tried to pretend I was asleep. When he stopped and rushed to the bathroom, I broke out in tears. When he came back, I told him I had a nightmare and then he said he would always protect me. After that night, he never did anything, but I am still afraid of him. I still love him and I told my grandma once, but she doesn't know what to believe anymore. The second injury, telling the person that doesn't believe the child. What are your deepest, darkest thoughts? Uh, I am ashamed that I wish I could just disappear or that I could just die in a freak accident. I so wanted the 2012 apocalypse to be real. It actually was real. It was just they over they overstated it. There was a guy in Mexico City that twisted his ankle. Uh, I am also ashamed how I think of just wanting to beat people up until they truly understand how I feel. I'm also ashamed of my social anxiety. I feel like a giant idiot when I freeze up, can't say what I want. Uh, I question my intelligence all the time and wish that I could just go back in time. Darkest secrets. Besides the abuse from my grandpa, I like watching porn and getting off from it. In the outside world, I would never dream of even kissing someone. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Nothing really. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Grandpa, did you mean to make me so scared of you? And why did you not listen when I said no? It is so... That is so heartbreaking. That is so heartbreaking. What a sweet soul you are. What a sweet, sweet soul you are. I hope you find some safe people in your life to love you and support you. And I think you too should contact Rain, R-A-I-N-N dot org. I hear great things about them. And you deserve love. Hang in there. This is a happy moment filled out by, ironically, by a woman who calls herself Sad Mommy. And I love this one. She writes, getting into a car that has been sitting in the sun when I am cold and feeling that warmth. Oh, God, that is the best feeling. That is the best feeling. 
this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself, I don't belong here. Yes, I do. He is, um, he writes asexual and closet bi. Uh, he doesn't want to say how old he is. Interesting, because it's a, an, an anonymous, an, an anonymous, an anonymous survey. Um, he was raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, he writes, my family environment was great. I was young as the four children of an immigrant family and was spoiled with attention. Um, he was never sexually abused, physically abused, or emotionally abused. Um, darkest thoughts, I'm a liar. It comes easy to me. My first inclination is to tell a lie. I live in denial. I am selfish because after all that has happened, I do not want to change. Darkest secrets. I've been cheating on my wife for about 25 years. I've had unprotected sex with women, men, transsexuals, uh, male to female, uh, people of different ethnic groups, people with different sized bodies, doms, subs, etc. I've thought about counting, but what's the difference? It would be in the hundreds. I'm a well-educated guy and model citizen uh, on the surface. Uh, he, his word's not mine. Uh, people think I'm a great guy, but all that is for nothing. I contracted HIV about 10 years ago when I told my wife I lied. I told her I had one affair with a woman who introduced me to heroin. It would kill her to know the depths of the sexual depravity I was practicing. I gradually reduced my intimacy with my wife over the same period of time, and she was not infected. I think I subconsciously cut back on sex with her because of my risky activity. If I had infected her, I wouldn't be here. Without any doubt, I would have killed myself. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Lately, I've had fantasies of being raped by a group of hung black men. I'm pretty sure I was infected by a black guy from Africa. I do, I do surf the net for meetings, but usually I back out in the end. I once thought I was a sex addict, but my sexual practices were because I was diagnosed with depression. When I was down, I would lose myself in meaningless anonymous sex. Um, you know, my thought as I read this is it sounds like you're a sex addict and that your depression is just a trigger. Um, again, I'm not a therapist. I'm a jackass that tells dick jokes, but... Um, might not hurt to check out a support group and you know half dozen see if see if you relate anyway um thank you for sharing that uh oh how do you feel after writing these things down uh writing this does nothing i feel numb i've been in and out of therapy for the last 15 years they were all great people but therapy for me is useless uh, i stopped for good last year now i'm totally dependent on meds and they make me feel great Hardly any depression. I'm happy. I'm peppy. I'm engaging. I join activities, but I still hate family get-togethers. You know, it It sounds like there's a lot of stuff still down there, though, that, that you're not dealing with, and I don't know how, how long you can sweep that stuff under the rug, the stuff that's causing you shame. And my hunch is, I could be wrong, but that you didn't get completely honest in therapy. Maybe you did. Maybe I'm judging you. I'm sorry if it comes across that way. This is a happy moment filled out by Lucas. Um, 
He writes, I, I got the idea to take this survey from my mother, who is a huge fan of the podcast. I never listened to it before, but today, on the way to the store, she had it on and I decided to listen in. What really interested me was that you took these surveys and actually read them during the podcast. It really got me thinking of all the hard times in my life and all the great times. As I thought about it more, I came to realize that the majority of these times were related to my mother. She gave birth to me at a young age and struggled to take care of me and eventually my younger brothers through the years. Maybe things weren't always the greatest, but she has tried her hardest and I know that. Even if we haven't always gotten along, she's always been there for me whenever I needed and I'm really grateful for that. So my happy moment was today. Just thinking of all the times me and her have spent together. I was just so overwhelmed with joy remembering both the good and bad times that I just wanted to take the time to fill this survey out. Whether this gets aired or not, I just want to finish up by saying thank you, Mom. I love you so much, and it makes me so happy happy that you've been there for me all of these years. I will never know how to thank you for that. Does that get any more beautiful? Does that get any more fucking beautiful? Oh, and he's 17, not even 18. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And then finally, um, I got this email from uh, Michael. And his initial email said, um, Paul, uh, later day, I am meeting for the first time with a therapist to work out things I've carried and wrestled with for over 40 years. I've always resisted going to see a therapist for so many reasons. Unfounded prejudices, fear of revealing things to someone again and being ignored, shame, guilt, crippling embarrassment, the list goes on. And yet hearing you and your guests talk so much about how therapy has helped, I just knew I would have to work up the courage. Over six months ago, I contacted a therapist in my area by email but never made the appointment. At the urging of a good friend, I finally picked up the phone and later today, I will see her. While I feel sick to my stomach, scared, and so full of anxiety, there is something deep inside that makes me feel good that I am taking this step. And I emailed him back and said, um, let me know how it goes. And he wrote back and said, it went well. I have not felt so comfortable with someone in a long time. Stupid insurance. It was only a 45-minute session, but it seems like she wants to continue. I have to admit, I so felt like she would have been disgusted by me. Thank you, Paul. I know you think of yourself as a piece of shit, but you have helped me so much. I love getting emails like that. And um, I, I hope that anybody who's listening to today's episode and is thinking about therapy or a support group or just opening up to a friend is a little bit closer to it um, because it saved my life. Asking for help saved my fucking life. I would have died in the year 2000. I know. I know for sure. And if not that, shortly afterwards. But it would have been ugly and fucking messy and sad. And I'm so glad that I got help and continue to get help. Um, I will need help the rest of my life and I'm okay with that. Because um, there's a lot of meaning and purpose in getting help. And the other thing is you allow people to be of service to you when you ask for help. And we forget that because we're so convinced that we're going to be, you know, inconveniencing them. And we're so wrapped up in our own fucking spiral of bullshit self-hatred that we forget 
that we can be helping somebody else by asking for help. I dare you to flowchart that last sentence. Anyway, I hope you got something out of this episode. And no matter what you're experiencing, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.